Hello. Hey, how's it going? It is going decently well. I am having an in-the-middle day today, if that makes sense. Uh, it wasn't the best day in the world. It wasn't the worst day in the world. It was just a day. How are you doing? <laughs> I the, Mixed results here. I am incredibly overwhelmed. I have so much on my plate right now. I have a tension headache from all of that, though I'm drinking tension tamer tea as we talk here. So we'll see how it works. Um, but, you know, we've been on the phone for a little bit prepping for this podcast episode. And just in the time that we've been doing that, I just feel so much better. It's amazing what connecting with a friend will do. I often tell my wife I'm a delightful person. If you have to tell somebody that, well, anyway. <laughs> well, b- before I dig myself into a hole, so what are you calling about? <laughs> All right. So as is often the case, I've got school on the brain. I'm in my final semester. And one of the things I have to do is a, a summative paper. And one aspect of that summative paper is to like bring the whole kitten caboodle together and write a couple of pages on what is the grand narrative of scripture. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, all 1800 years or however many it was, all of that time and all of these different authors and cultures and all that, put it all together into one story. What's that story? What is scripture trying to say through it all? And though I have already written that segment, I'm not asking you to do my assignment for me. I am very curious, like, what would you say is the grand narrative and why does it matter? Oh, man, that's so interesting. So I'm curious about a couple of things before even jumping in. First of all, I think it's fascinating that your paper is requiring the grand narrative as opposed to a theological summary or a doctrinal outline or something. Well, and to be clear, they are asking for that in the second part of the paper, but it's specific doctrines. They, they names, and I don't even know if doctrines are the quite, quite right word, but uh, theological concepts, uh, because they're not trying to say, you know, where do you fall on Calvinism versus Arminianism or whatever. It's like, it's still a little bit bigger, broad brushed. But anyway, you're right. I do appreciate that the fact that they're adding this. Yeah, it's just interesting to me. I just wonder if a hundred years ago, would that have been in this assignment? 50 years ago, would that have been in this assignment? Even 20 years ago, when I had to do, when I was doing my MDiv and I had to do a, a, a summative paper at the end of my three systematic classes, I don't know that sketching out the grand narrative of Scripture was in the assignment. And I just think it says something about the shift in the way that we look at the Bible, that we are looking at the Bible as story first. Even in your paper, it is chronologically first in your paper, if I'm understanding you correctly. Is that right? 
You're correct. And so we're saying there is a story. That story is the foundation for everything else. So let's get the story down straight before we start to draw implications out of the story. I just think that's a really interesting sort of methodological statement, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I personally love it because I tend to think this way. My brain kind of works from big picture down to small details. And I know there's plenty of other people, and I think you might be one of them, that start with small details and work their way up to the bigger story. So anyway, it, it I appreciate it because it just fits with how I tend to think. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to kind of with with that caveat of this is how you tend to think. I'm curious to hear the big pieces of the grand narrative that you included. I'm going to let you go first since you've had the opportunity to, you know, write a paper on this rather than shoot from the hip. Uh, <laughs> and then I'll give you my thoughts as well. But then I, as you're sharing, I'm curious to hear how you got to the pieces that you're adding. Does that make sense? Oh, man. I could talk for the whole duration of this podcast answering all of those questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the challenge of my paper because this only comprises the first two pages of my paper. So like, that's just enough time to have to say something more than a pithy statement, but not enough time to really go into great detail. So you have to have an economy of words. And yeah, it's, it's somewhere awkwardly between Jesus saves, period, and, you know, Walter Wangerin's just brilliant, uh, The Book of God. Did you ever read that? I have a copy. It's sitting there waiting for me. I have not read it yet. Uh, you know, and I would be fascinated to hear you read that, having wrestled with this yourself, because this is what he's trying mm. to do. He novelizes the scripture story from the point of Abraham to the point of Jesus and is really trying to tell the grand narrative of scripture, but you don't get five oh. or 600 pages or whatever he gets. Um, right. You get well, two. And, okay. So I got to set my tea down because you lit me up. All right. I, I know nobody can see my gestures, but I had to have both hands. I have to gesture because, <laughs> okay, you just you just said Walter Rangren's story starts with Abraham and goes to Jesus. And that's telling the middle of the story. And unless you start at the beginning, I think you completely miss it. There's a reason why our Bible starts at Genesis 1-1. So here are the elements. I'm going to answer your question because you fired me up to answer it. All right. So- so it has to start with God as creator, God as initiator, God as sovereign, God as ruler. Um, and then God creates, and God creates this world in which human beings are the natural occupants uh, of this land, and he creates them in his image. And as image bearers, we are tasked with ruling in his stead over the earth, we are, we we carry that divine image of the King wherever we go. We are meant to image Him as vice regents 
under him, but over the earth. And we're meant to do so in community and in fellowship with him and with one another. That's where it starts. Then sin enters the world and messes all of that up. Now the image of God in us is marred. We no longer fully resemble the king, the creator, the God of the universe, because he is perfect and we no longer are. We no longer image him perfectly. And the rest of the scriptures is God initiating contact with humanity and attempting to work with humanity to redeem the image of God in which they were created. And so it's meant to restore relationship with him, restore relationship with one another, restore us to our rightful place as God's image bearers and vice regents over the earth. So he makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant even back before with Noah or with Adam. Uh, He makes a covenant with the Israel and Moses at Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with David and he, he continues to institute these covenants, seeking to draw people back to him, create a people that will image him fully on this earth, and thereby bring everybody else into alignment. And then he ultimately sends Jesus as a human, as the perfect image bearer, to be that sacrifice, to pave that perfect way for us to do that. And again, he institutes the church to reconcile humanity and creation back to him and right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right standing as vice regents under God, but over creation. That, and, then, and then in the end, he restores all of it in the new heaven and the new earth, and it all comes together in the final consummation. That's, that, to me, that's the grand narrative. Mm. And you can't get that by starting with Abraham. Oh, that's good. And to Wangren's defense, it's been years and years and years since I read that. He may actually work in some of the earlier stuff later on by putting it into Moses's mouth. That would make sense. And I, I'm willing to concede that. Uh, so uh, I, I'm not saying Wangren didn't, but I would have said Wangren didn't in, just in order to get the conversation going. Because that worked, but uh, <laughs> boy, didn't it! I'm going to go back to my tea. You, you go ahead yeah. and talk. So uh, there are a couple things I might. Uh, it's very helpful. I, I'm glad I had you go first because it helped me note a few things I would either say differently or I would emphasize just a tad bit differently. Uh, if I were telling Great. the grand narrative of Scripture, I wonder if the way you s- responded to the Abraham starting point and pushing it back to creation made me wonder about wanting to start with the pre-existent Trinity for all of eternity existing in this sort of endless and overflowing state of love. Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm dying to jump in and respond to that, but I don't want to interrupt you. Oh, go ahead. I, I have three or four kind of disparate thoughts. Please jump in. Okay. That's something I wrestled with in my paper. It does. I bring it out in the paper. The full concept of the Trinity doesn't become clear until the New Testament era. And so it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around this. But I did 
bring in the Trinitarian reality of the God who did the creating. And so I do think that that's foundational as well. So thank you for bringing that back up. But here's what I wrestled with, and I would love to get your thoughts on it. God himself did not start there. God started not even by revealing his name or revealing himself fully. He started with creation and he started like our story. Like I think people accuse us and and rightfully so. We accuse humans of being anthropocentric or what's the word? Like centered on anthropocentric. Uh, Yeah, that one. Um, basically focused on humanity. And we do our theology a little too much focused on us and not enough focused on God. And I think that's a valid critique. However, I feel like that's where scripture started. Like it starts where we start. And then we gradually start understanding God along the way. And so I don't disagree with you, but I kind of disagree with both of us, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think without ever having heard Wangeren explain himself, I have always suspected this is why Wangeren starts the story where he does. If I remember correctly, the opening scene is the darkness in the desert when Abram is called out of his tent by God to make this covenant. At which point we as 20th 20th and 21st century readers import all of our two, three thousand years, four thousand years of theology into that moment, whereas Abram literally did not know God's name. Yeah. He knew nothing. He is not just literally, but figuratively in the dark. He knows this. This God, he doesn't know what to call him, so he calls him the high God, told him to go somewhere else. That's what he gets. And I think that is a fascinating starting point for God's covenant people. Because in some way, coming back to our idea of grand narrative, I might write my version of the grand narrative of Scripture around the idea of God's self-revelation. That might be my kind of theme if I were to pick one. God is slowly but surely showing people who he is, revealing himself, starting from that point on. Uh, I think that would have some limitations to it, some of which you've already pointed out, and I totally get why you started with the creation narrative, uh, but that might be one interesting way to tell the story. The other thing that I thought was interesting as you were telling the creation story, I would have highlighted the chaos versus order element of the story from the Garden of Eden versus what was outside of the Garden of Eden all the way through to the descent of the new Jerusalem and the gates and the fact that the gates can always be open because there's nothing outside of the gates that is chaotic. I might have also told the story with that emphasis. Well, so I'm, I'm curious about that because I feel like 
to your average everyday reader coming to the Bible and reading the creation story, the concept of chaos is not immediately apparent. And it's some of the theological leaps that theologians have made to say, okay, the waters tend to represent chaos and disorder, kind of like an evil, kind of scary thing. Um, and that plays out in different ancient Near Eastern cultures. And so that the first listeners probably would have had that association. And so now we build in that chaos motif into our theology. And I don't, I don't know that it it's not there, but I also don't see it necessarily fronted or emphasized, except in theological circles. No, absolutely. This is, I am deeply indebted to Greg Boyd and God at War, one of his major texts. He was successful in convincing me that the idea of chaos is a significant Old Testament theme. I think in order to do this, he really goes through two basic movements. One is that he does an excellent job convincing me that a number of the things that I think about Satan and evil have reached a level of specificity that the Old Testament didn't have access to, that are only revealed to us in the New Testament. And so, therefore, the Old Testament authors would not have been thinking those things. They are thinking more generic things. And I think my first effort is to allow for the genericness of evil in the Old Testament mindset. And second, yes, I think that references to water, to Leviathan and Job, to all of those kinds of things— he has convinced me that this is an assumed theme, but you're absolutely right. If it is a theme, it is an implicit theme, not an explicit theme, at least for those of us who are coming with an evangelical worldview where we're talking about personal redemption and those kinds of things. And one of the things I appreciate about the, the chaos theme is that it broadens out redemption from human redemption. And you already mentioned this as we were trying to remember how to pronounce anthropocentric. <laughs> it broadens out the redemption theme from a human redemption to a creation-wide redemption in a way that I think is consistently biblical, again, all the way from Garden to New Jerusalem. Yeah, I... I like the cosmic idea of salvation, and I, th I do think that the chaos theme or motif helps build that. Is that your motivation then in including that in your grand narrative of Scripture? I think so. I think my driving motivation is to make sure we're thinking about redemption in a broader sense than just human salvation. God redeems the cosmos, not just me. Right, which is awesome. I, you know, in Romans, Paul seems to almost personify sin and death, that they're not just some theological construct or, or moral force, but it's, it, it, it acts as its own dimension, its own being, its own 
uh, cosmic influence. And I, so I think that's a lot of what Paul's getting at when he talks about salvation in Romans is is an end to sin and death, these almost anthropomorphized ideas that, that are cosmic in scope. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think I'm nervous that my boxes for Satan and evil are shut too tight, if that makes sense. I'm worried that I read my assumptions into Scripture rather than letting assumption Scripture respond to my assumptions. And so I, particularly in the arena of Satan, the demonic, those kinds of things, and so I... I tend to pull back and use other words as a way of reminding myself that I need to let Scripture respond to me and correct me, which really brings me into kind of the the next kind of set of questions for us to talk about. I'm curious to ask you, what is the benefit on a day-to-day basis of having a sense of the grand narrative of scripture. How does that help you? Why does it matter? Yeah, I th- great great question. I think it does two different things. On the one hand, it gives me a placeholder. It gives me some hooks to put my hat on. I can place various episodes of scripture within the grand narrative and quickly orient myself to what's happening here. And if I have painted an accurate narrative of Scripture, that is a handy reference. And it also helps us to interpret our own time and space as well. You know, we are uh, the, the post-Jesus side. We have received the Holy Spirit in his stead. We are part of an ecclesiastical community, the church, and that is the part of the story that we occupy. And so— I think it helps bring the Bible into the present uh, in terms of identifying how we then live. But it also, it's almost like a conversation partner in a way. It's very similar to what we have already done on this podcast. I cast my very emphatic vision of what I thought the grand narrative was. And you said, well, hang on, I would, I might start it here, or I might emphasize this, or I might include that. And, you know, we're also kind of bouncing off of uh, Wengren, who evidently starts his story a little bit differently than I would start mine. So all of these conversation partners are helpful when I come back to the text and read a particular story in a particular part of the narrative. And maybe that doesn't quite fit my own narrative. And now I need to adjust my narrative slightly. I need to account for this reality. And so I might need to sit with that for a little bit and figure out how do do all these pieces fit together now that I've realized I'm missing this. So it makes for kind of this dance. I think there's um, there's a book out there with the title Hermeneutical Spiral. You know, hermeneutics just being the name of how you interpret scripture and the spiral you back and forth and up and down. And you're just kind of, it's this ongoing dance of what I think I know, what I'm learning, how do I reinterpret the whole mix in light of what I'm learning? And you just back and forth. Yeah. I, 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 you're making two points and I think they're both excellent. 
The first that you said was that it draws the Bible into today, and it reminded me of N.T. Wright's analogy that he always uses uh, about this with uh, a Shakespeare play. Have you heard this? No. This is one of my favorite N.T. Wright teachable moments. Wright is so good at saying things in a way that is academically rich and immediately usable in any situation. And his way of saying this is, imagine for a moment that we found a new Shakespeare play, but we only had four out of the five acts. And so the acting troupe's job would be to study the first four acts so well that they could improvise the fifth act. (laughs) And that is our job with scripture. We are the fifth act. And I love that. I think that's just a very delightful way to say what I think you were trying to get at. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Uh, We are that fifth act. And I like the word improvise. I've read so much lately. So many different authors are are saying we have to immerse ourselves into the story of Scripture, and we have to enter its story and not try to bring its Mm -hmm. story into our own. I mean, in other words, it gets to set the pace. It sets the rules. It sets the dimensions of the story. And it's not like, how do I apply this scripture to my life? It's not, how, what, how do I get out of this what I need to get out of it? It's how do I enter the story? How do I enter this worldview? And exactly. if, if you've done that sufficiently, you will improvise in this fifth act or fourth act. I can't remember which one you said. But anyway, in our current fifth, act. I think. Um, yes. And by the way, please excuse me, all of you people who know Shakespeare fairly well. I am not a Shakespeare fan. And so if there are not actually five acts in Shakespeare plays, I'm sorry if I butchered that. <laughs> I think they are each different. I think they're not consistent in how many acts they have. At any rate, I don't know. I like the idea of immersing ourselves so much in the story that we can improvise in our present moment as we play our own role in that story. That's, that's a cool image. Yeah. And and I think the other thing that you were hitting on, and again, I totally think you're right, though I hadn't thought of it until you said it, at least what I heard you saying second was, if you haven't articulated your own grand narrative of scripture, you have one, you just haven't examined it. And mm. so you can't allow it to be corrected by these other conversation partners because you don't even know you have one. Mm. And so forcing ourselves to acknowledge it is not the same as making it up. It is bringing out in the open what we all already read the Bible with and just forcing it to be more nuanced and more available to critique. Yeah, and I think that is my experience with this paper is, as I put this into words, one, I don't want to misstate my own case. Secondly, I don't want to misrepresent the Bible. And finally, 
I am petrified that as people hear my grand narrative, they're going to come alongside and say, yeah, you missed this whole thing that's like vital to the whole story. And I'm going to be like, you know, smacking my forehead and going, I can't believe I missed that. Uh, so, yeah. but you're right. It does force you to bring to the foreground the lens through which you read the Bible anyway. Exactly. And this is important on a daily, you know, we talk, we're talking about why does this matter? As we talk about this, my church that I pastor at is actively jumping into a series on miracles. And our preaching pastor, who schedules out the sermon series, the lead pastor then chooses which pieces of that he's going to preach. But it's the preaching pastor that actually does the the big picture structuring of the of the preaching. Okay. And one of the things I love that he chose to do was to start off a sermon series on miracles by looking at the 10,000-foot view of the story of Scripture in order to make sure that we are situating ourselves properly, not just in the narrative, but in the theological scope of Scripture. Because these two elements— really need to inform what's going on when we talk about the miraculous. The miraculous in Jesus' life, the book of Acts, may or may not be the same as the miraculous in the middle of the Old Testament. Certainly, it's different from what we would have called the miraculous had the fall not happened. And we need to be mindful of those things as we enter into a conversation about God's supernatural intervention, right? What, what that means is different because God is creator. Mm. What that means is different because God chose to come as a human being and die on a cross. All of those things matter a lot. And if you don't have a grand narrative that you are conscious of, you aren't taking the time to think through how it fits into all of those other pieces, which means you're just taking a piece out of context of the rest of it. Yeah, and it's really, as you're talking about it, I'm just feeling the dangers that we already know are inherent in reading the scriptures. And that is assuming our narrative is true, assuming we have done all of the exegesis properly, and imposing our narrative upon these other doctrines and making sure that those doctrines conform to our our own narrative. That is not how we mean for this to work. In fact, it's more like we talked about before, it's more of a dance and I'm so I'm hearing you describe that and thinking, "Yes, and oh man, I sure hope people do that well." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and and coming back to your spiral idea, uh, whether we do it well or not, at least I hope we consistently do it in a way that we are moving forward, growing, uh, incorporating more than we incorporated yesterday. Yes. Trying to be better. Absolutely. And that is— Striving for more. That's exactly what I meant by doing it well. I mean, 
yes, that's the only way to do it well. Exactly. To, to humbly continue to readjust. Hmm. Humbly. I like that. That's exact. Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be a sense of humility. Even if you get fired up because somebody else tells the story a little different than you would. Yeah, well, and this is, I think, healthy, humble people can engage in disagreement in a way that is cordial. Yes, and honestly should, because absolutely, that's how these conversations help us grow. Like if you hadn't come alongside and, and done some give and take with me on my own version of the story, you know, I wouldn't have those pieces. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I have other thoughts about this, but they bleed into my other thoughts. And so I'm going to save them till later. But uh, yes. Well, awesome. Well, then I will turn to the audience then and say thank you for joining us on this episode. And we hope that you'll take some time to write down what is your narrative. Or if you don't quite know yet and all those pieces aren't there, this is a great exercise to to put you through your paces and sit down with scripture and try to figure it out. So uh, we'd love to know what pieces did we miss? What pieces would you add? What pieces would you emphasize? And if you feel up to it, we would love to hear your whole grand narrative. That would be phenomenal. Uh, so like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, just search for On the Phone with Josh. Any of the books that we mentioned on here will be in our show notes. And we would love it if you would start a conversation with somebody in your life to ask them, what do you think the grand narrative of scripture is? How would you tell the story? That would be awesome. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I really would love... I know you just kind of said this, but on any of our posts about our grand narrative of scripture episode here, post in the comments just one thing that you think is important to have as one of the pieces of the grand narrative of scripture. Just post one thing, and I I would love to hear what that would be. Yeah, that would be so good. Uh, Well... Josh from Missouri, you had a thought that was just waiting to be said, and so I want to hear it. Yes, I'm super excited about this. So I am reading In This World of Wonders. It is a memoir of Nicholas Waltersdorf. Do you know anything about him? Not a whit. Okay, so he was a philosophy professor at Yale and then Calvin, and a variety of other places, I'm sure, but that's as far into the story as I've gotten. So I love the way he started his memoir. He basically said, you know, I was asked to write this. There has been no controversy in my life. I haven't really made any significant mistakes that are like great stories. Basically, I'm a professional philosopher, so I sit and think a lot. And in between thinking, I talk to students about how they should think, and then I assign them papers and I read their papers on how to think, and then I go back to thinking. I'm not sure this is a good story, <laughs> but but apparently people want me to write it, so here we go. And uh, it is beautifully written and... His story starts off in the 30s, uh, 
and moves forward from there. But one of the things I loved, he tells about his family who were all deeply reformed Christians and how they would gather every Sunday around the table and they would have these incredibly fiery conversations full of disagreement on everything from religion to politics to anything else. And at the end of the conversation, they would get up, hug each other, and go about their business knowing that they were still close as family could possibly be and looking forward to next week. (laughs) And he talks about how this created a model for him of intellectual engagement that didn't come across to him as conflict and that you could easily disagree with people you love and have very open and free conversation and the relationship was never at risk. And he comments on how this is not how everybody else seems to see the world. (laughs) Uh, And... I was deeply appreciative of his perspective on that. I think that's really important for me, at least, to grow from. Yeah, I love that. And I love that that's a dynamic that has always been true in our friendship. And we've had the ability to disagree and to nuance ideas and wrestle through them and so anyway, I love that he is talking about that very attitude, approach, whatever you want to say, because uh, I think it's it's really important. Well, and the thing that I love is that we disagree so comfortably. If you were listening to us, you wouldn't notice it. Mm. A, a few minutes ago, you told me about a paper you had just written I don't think you've even finished ha- finished it yet, so you haven't handed it in. And my first response was, man, here's three things I would do completely differently. <laughs> and no thought was given to it because it's cordial disagreement. It's fine. And I also appreciate the freedom to have that kind of back and forth. Right. Yeah. I could not agree more. Well, what about you? What have you been thinking about other than this giant paper that is looming over you? Yeah. So in the vein of doing theology together and potentially disagreeing, I I think some people might be concerned that I'm bordering on the heretical with my thought here. And so... That's all right. They already thought that. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll just speak freely. Uh, yeah, go for it. So I've been thinking a lot about the difference between being and doing. And I think it's obviously it's come up a lot in our podcast. So this is not a surprise to anybody. But I think doing is an emphasis within our culture such that I'm automatically suspicious when doing becomes the main objective within the Christian faith. And Absolutely. So with that suspicion in mind, I have been working mentally. This is a this is an in-process thought. So if I'm, you know, preaching heresy here, I got time to pull it back, I hope. Uh, but I've been kind of reworking in my mind, what does the Great Commission 
mean in light of an emphasis on doing or on an emphasis on being? And so what's causing me to think about this is Paul doesn't instruct his people to go be a bunch of preachers of the gospel. That is a very normal thing for us to hear in our Sunday services, that we're supposed to go out and evangelize and share the gospel and preach the gospel and whatever. But I don't see Paul instructing his churches to do the same. I see him very focused on how they are being in relationship to one another, in relationship to God, in relationship to their communities. How are they being? And Hmm. then I look at Israel— And the part of Israel's story, Israel, I believe, my way of reading Israel's grand narrative, is that they were always meant to be the idealized picture of what living for God in right relationship with God would be on a societal level. And it would be so attractive that all of the other nations would give up their false gods and come worship the true God because of the attractiveness of the Israelite society that has lived in accordance with Yahweh's commands. And if that is the model, if I'm reading them correctly, that is a being model rather than a go into the nations and preach model. And I think when it comes to the Great Commission or Acts 2.8 or uh, uh, Acts 1.8, rather, um, you're going to be my... uh, witnesses in Israel and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, or go into all the world, I think what God is saying is, you are now my model people, and you don't live in one society anymore. You live in all societies, in all people groups. And the 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 word go in the Great Commission is actually a participle, And many have suggested that the best way to interpret that is to say, as you go. And so I think my working model of the great commandment, great commission rather, is as you go, as you be, as you be in your community, in your people, in your place, be the idealized model of what it it means to live in right relationship with Yahweh. That's what we're supposed to do. Mm. That's good. Well, and I, I think that opens up that opens us up to be Christians following the will of God in f- a far broader sense. Everybody doesn't need to become a pastor. Everybody doesn't have to become a missionary. If you work at a school or you work in a factory, or you work at a uh, restaurant, or you work wherever, your job is to be an awesome Christian there. Mm -hmm. And thereby to showcase Christ as salt and light, as Jesus said it. Right. Well, and, you know, even Jesus is teaching in Matthew about what is the kingdom of God like? Well, it's like yeast that a woman took and put it into a bunch of flour and it just kind of permeated through the whole thing until the whole thing had leaven. I really believe we're much more about being 
than doing. Hmm. Well, and if we focus on being, I think there will be a powerful attractional element to our lives. 100%. Out of which we can teach them to obey all that God had commanded us, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and be with Jesus until the end of the age. Absolutely. You know, like, it would be a great witness if Christians consistently had deeply fulfilling marriages, if Christians were awesome with their money, if Christians were just character people, you know, that that gets noticed. Mm-hmm. And it gets noticed when we're not. Yes, and it gets noticed when we're not, when the salt has lost its saltiness. Or when we have to admit our failings with a Witch Josh question. Yes, I love this week's Witch Josh question. Uh, this week's Witch Josh question is, Witch Josh destroyed a big screen TV playing hide and seek in a department store when he was a kid. Okay, so that's just too awesome. And it's not me. So you got to tell the story. <laughs> All right. Yes, the answer is me. Uh, and here's the story. My family went to, do you remember Circuit City? Oh, dang, that's going back a while, but yes. I even remember when it closed. Yes. Well, let me go back further. My, uh, my family went this particular evening to a local store that was a big electronics store that was a predecessor to Circuit City. When Circuit City moved into town, it put this other store called Leechmere out of, out of business. Okay. So we're going back a ways. I was like five. And do you remember how in these old uh, stores, like the Circuit Cities of the world, they would have somewhere this giant wall of TVs? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't, they weren't all attached to the, the wall like they are now because they weren't flat screens. They were on a series of shelves and it would just be like three or four or five layers of TVs all on these shelves so that you could see the same thing on every TV. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we went into the store and this particular store had a little movie rental place in it. So you could pick out like a VHS tape and rent it. And my parents were picking out a movie to rent. And my sister and I got bored and elected to start playing hide and seek. And I am a very determined person. <laughs> and it was my turn to hide. And so I climbed up on the second or third row of those TVs and crawled behind all of the TVs on the, the like I said, the second or third shelf of TVs. <laughs> and my sister knew me well enough to check there, <laughs> which to this day blows my mind. <laughs> and so she like, I her head pops up at the end of the row of TVs that I'm hiding behind. And I make a break for the other end, <laughs> trying to get out of this spot before she can get to me. 
and my foot catches one of the TV cords and I knock over this giant big screen TV and my memory, clear as day, I have no idea if it's accurate, but clear as day, is of me looking out of the hole that this TV falling made uh, in the giant wall of TVs and realizing that it was only inches away from falling on some guy's head. Oh. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So there you go. Anytime when my kids were younger and they did something really knuckleheaded, this was my bar. (laughs) Well, I love that you started this whole story with trying to pin the blame on Circuit City as though it wasn't you that put this place out of business. (laughs) I did not single-handedly put Leechmere out of business. Uh, And I will say, credit where credit is due, my parents handled this situation with incredible grace. I don't remember exactly what they did, but I do not have any negative recollection. I have recollection of being very soundly corrected, (laughs) but I do not have any recollection of being publicly embarrassed. I do not have any recollection of them being overly reactive. I remember being taken directly home immediately, set in my room and told to sit there. I'm assuming so that they could cool down, but whatever they did, props to them for handling a really knuckleheaded, stupid moment as a kid uh, with reasonable grace. I've, I've always been impressed. Nice. Uh, it's a fantastic story, and I'm glad you did not hurt that old man. I'm picturing him like an old man, but maybe he's not. You know, I was five. Everybody was an old man. Oh, all right. Fair enough. All right. Well, now that uh, we got the embarrassment over, are we on for next week? Absolutely. I can't wait. I'll talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. What? All right. Bye.